Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 315 of the podcast. It's August 21st, 2018. Why do people fear change? Why are adults afraid of talking about their fears? Well, my guest today is eminently qualified to answer such questions and to provide advice that can help us. My guest for this episode is Bob Marr, PhD, author of the outstanding book, Mastering Fear. Now, Bob was previously my guest uh, on episode 153, where we discussed one of his earlier books on Kaizen, a book titled One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. And by the way, earlier this year, I noticed that his other book, The Spirit of Kaizen, was one of the few books by an American author that Toyota was selling at the Toyota Commemorative Museum of Industry and Technology in Nagoya, Japan. So I hope you enjoy today's discussion on his book, Mastering Fear. As the subtitle says, you know, can we, quote, harness emotion to achieve excellence in health, work, and relationships? Emotion is part of the human condition. I don't think it can or should be removed from the workplace. I think part of the Toyota respect for people principle, which is maybe better stated as respect for humanity, is accepting and bringing our full selves to the workplace. I mean, we're not just logical, rational creatures. And I think it's better to recognize and accept that than it is to stifle emotion. Anyway, here's today's discussion. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to find links to Bob's books, uh, see uh, some video of him talking on these different subjects, you can find all of that by going to leanblog.org slash 315. Well, Bob, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, Mark. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, thank you. And, you know, last time we talked about um, a really uh, outstanding book, um, The Spirit of Kaizen. And I was wondering if, um, you know, if you can just sort of recap a little bit about your background and how you discovered Kaizen. And if, in particular, is there anything new that you've discovered or anything that's been surprising um, as, you, as you continue teaching about Kaizen? Um, how I came to this is I'm a clinical psychologist, but I'm in an unusual setting. I work in a family medicine clinic, training family physicians who are in their three years of residency training. And I spent about half my time following one of the doctors through a half day of her clinic 
standing in the corner of the exam room and then giving them feedback. So it's this amazing opportunity for a psychologist because you're seeing people before they make poor health choices, before they make relationship choices that are problematic, before they have problems. And is there a way to, what we were struggling with, is there a way to intervene in people's lives before they need the help? And uh, so I started looking at research on success. And one day I was reading the newspaper and there was a full page ad for the umpteenth year Lexus was the number one highest quality car made in the world. And I thought, well, maybe there's something metaphorically about how you build a car that I can apply to building your life. So that led me to a book called The Machine That Changed the World, which you think might be about the computer, but it's actually about the mm -hmm. automobile. Mm -hmm. And they kept talking about Dr. Dr. Edward Deming and this process of Kaizen. Um, and so as I started researching it, I found that Kaizen, the idea of making extremely small steps to accomplish large goals, had been applied in business. And there were literally hundreds and hundreds of references in Google, but I had, couldn't see any applications of it in people's personal lives. And that's what led me to look at it and actually had, long story short, an opportunity to work with Dr. Deming for a week and oh, wow. hear, it from, hear it from him. So that's how I got this idea of small steps. And the other reason why it's often useful in a medical setting or in many settings is Mark Twain said it beautifully when it said, I'm all for progress. It's change I object to. <laughs> so it just seems like it's hard for us to make change. But we found in our studies that if you could break the steps down so small, they didn't require self-control, discipline, willpower, people could make those changes. So to go back to your other question about what surprises we've seen, there's a couple one is in the area of business because one of the things we cover in both of the Kaizen books is about paying attention to mistakes while they're so small they don't seem to be very consequential or matter and fix them before they get too big to avoid. Uh, the most dramatic and most painful example since the publication of the book is the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of mm -hmm. Mexico. Disaster uh, that there had been over 200 quote small unquote spills at that platform before that fateful night when those 11 people died and the Gulf was poisoned. So, uh, paying attention to very, very small mistakes, which the uh, airline industry is very good at doing, but many corporations, in their haste to get a product out into the marketplace or to make the quarterly profit, ignore. The other dramatic change is in the area of health. Something that's been going, a research project been going on for the last 15 years is looking at sitting versus standing because people think exercise means you go to the gym and sweat for 30, 40 minutes. But it turns out that not only walking, but just moving from sitting to standing is extremely important to your health. In fact, the chief cardiologist at, at um, the Mayo Clinic found that sitting six to seven hours a day without getting up every hour and just stretching or moving gives you the same cardiac risk as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah. So there's all this research now on sitting versus standing. Yeah, and... Um... You, you talk about, you know, making changes small and, you know, there, there might be a situation where somebody wants to try a standing desk and, and maybe they're afraid to. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like one of my takeaways from your, your first books, The Spirit of Kaizen, and before that, One Small Step Can Change Your Life, is the idea of um, starting small. The idea, maybe you can build on this example, if someone thinks, well, I, I don't think I could stand all day long, 
Well, you, you would recommend, well, maybe try starting stand five minutes at a time and try to work your way from there. Well, we're not even sure that standing all day is necessarily the answer. No, fair uh, enough. <laughs> but just, but, and, the, and a standing desk is often great, so you can sit or stand and move, but um, they're expensive, and a lot of companies don't want to invest the money. But what we found is if you get up every 30 minutes or every hour at the latest, just stretch or move for two to three minutes, you get much of the same benefit. Again, our, we've inherited the body of a hunter-gatherer. Our bodies just weren't designed for sitting. And so to just get up and stretch periodically is enough to give you much of the same benefit. Sometimes yeah. there's too much of a good thing. So standing yeah. all day doesn't necessarily... <laughs> sure. But, um, and maybe we can, you know, we, we can tie this into um, your, your latest book, Mastering Fear. I mean, you know, somebody fears this change. I'm, I'm going, I'm going to sit less, however we define that, or I'm going yes. to exercise more. You know, I think, you know, there's examples in, um, I forget which of your earlier books about helping somebody get started with exercise and they were, um, uh, maybe not confident or they, they were afraid of this. And there, there was a Kaizen strategy that, um, would, would, would help, um, help address that fear, the, uh, the amygdala and the fight or flight instinct yes. kicking in that, that fear is a very natural human response yes. to a situation, right? Yes. Yes. So, that, please go ahead. Sorry. Um, and so you often, the bigger, the demands we make on ourselves, I want to lose all this weight before the summer so I can work nice in a bathing suit. I want to be married by the end of the year. I want to get rich. The bigger the goal, the more it triggers that amygdala, the fear response in the body. So what we found in Kaizen is if you could make the steps ridiculously small, you were building habits and creating change without triggering the amygdala and getting overwhelmed. Yeah. So how, how let's make you know transition and talk about your book mastering fear. Um, what led to that book? And I'm I'm guessing, or you know, a listener might guess the strategy that um, involves respect for people or respect for humanity, as Toyota might call it, isn't about lecturing people about you shouldn't be afraid, right? Right. Right. The, the, what led me to it was, uh, again, because I'm working in a setting where we see people for annual physicals and we see them for flu shots, here was a chance to uh, intervene in people's lives, but we really didn't have any tools. So what my team and I began doing is collecting what they call prospective studies, where they follow people for 10, 15, 20, sometimes up to 70 years to see who, in spite of adversity and challenge and setbacks, ultimately thrives not just in their jobs, not just in their health, not just in relationships, all three. And there's over two dozen studies that have done that. And one of the most consistent findings is the people in these studies rarely use the word stress or anxiety or nervousness. They talked about being afraid and couldn't figure out for a while why they'd prefer the word fear to stress. But again, working in a family medicine clinic, we see people every age, and we realize children never talk about being anxious or stressed. Did you ever hear a small child say they're anxious about the boogeyman? <laughs> no. And so the reason we think successful people as adults use the word fear is they assume that whenever they're doing something important, fear shows up. 
they see it as a normal, healthy part of life, not something they have to get angry at or depressed about or blame somebody else about or overeat or drink in order to, to squelch. Now, what they do with fear is very different than other people, which we can talk about, but they see fear as a normal part of life instead of something that's a disease they have to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And so... Um... Yeah, I mean, so what, 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 what do you think happens then as, um, as we age and, you know, whether it's uh, school, workplaces, society, I mean, like what, there, there, there's a, a part of your book where you say, you know, ask somebody, what are you afraid of? And yes. people might find that to be a really awkward question. I mean, why, why, why is that? Is it, uh, what, where does that instinct kind of get drummed out of us, if you will? That's a good question. I don't know if I have the answer, but we think happens in most Western cultures is we've banished fear from our conversation. Uh, and the two examples I use are one of the ones that, that you mentioned, that is to see how far we've come from that childlike acceptance of fear. Uh, just go up to an, I say, go, go up to another adult at dinner tonight, wait for a pause in the conversation and say, so what are you afraid of? And people are going to look at you like you're crazy. Whereas if you say to a five-year-old, what do you want for Christmas? You're in for a 20-minute conversation. Ask a child what they're afraid of. You're in for a 20-minute conversation. Children know they live in a world of fear. They can't control if their parents are in a good mood or bad, if a teacher is going to be nice or mean. Kids stand in line all summer to see scary movies. They can't wait for Jurassic Park to come scare them. <laughs> so they know they've got to engage fear. They might as well have some fun doing it. So we think for some reason, reason in western culture we banished fear from our conversation and turned it into a disease because if you look at the healthy physical symptoms of fear it's the same as what we're calling stress yeah and wanting and wanting help to get rid of so what i mean what what are some uh what are some strategies for let's say in a you know an adult whether it's in the workplace or in personal life um to get people to embrace that fear or there, what, what are some strategies that um, are, are helpful? We, we don't want to repress it or ignore it and, or be in denial about it, but what, what, what are some things that we can or should do? Well, uh, one of the reasons I wrote that the, the book on fear is, and the, is to, to show people that virtually every successful person recognizes that uh, fear is going to show up when they have big dreams. And so there's quote after quote after quote of world famous people talking about their fears from astronauts to actors to famous business people. So uh, the first thing is is to recognize that if you set your dreams big enough, fear is going to show up. Now then the question is, what are we supposed to do with fear? Um, Because what people tend to do is they tend to turn it into anger or they turn it or they depress it or they try to avoid the things they desire and therefore are afraid of. So it's basically only two strategies. That's the good news. There's not a lot to learn. It's just as, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, life is uh, simple but not easy. So hmm. the first is, and I ask this to audiences, Mark, all over the world. I'll say every other animal has a healthy response to fear. When a deer is frightened, what does it do? runs away when a bird is frightened what does it do it flies away when a mouse is frightened what does it do it burrows when a lion is frightened what does it do it attacks so i've asked audiences all over the world if every other animal on the planet has a built-in response to fear we must have one too 
What do you think it is? And no one's ever given me the answer that seems obvious once I show them video and research, but I could, I could do it without that by asking you or your listeners, uh, when children have a nightmare or a thunderstorm, what do they do? <laughs> they run to their parents' bed. Yeah. I asked the audience, do you think the doctor taught your baby to do that before they sent them home with you? Right. And people laugh, of course not. So the, the healthy response in humans is to reach to another for support. Now, many of us got learned otherwise growing up that that's not the right thing to do, either because our parents discouraged us from coming to their bed thinking that was the right thing to do, or because much of our schooling and education and even our vocation is based on competing with other people for the next slot. So even the most successful listeners to this show are got where they are in life by competing against the kid next to them in high school and the kid next to them in college and competing for the jobs they now have. Individual competition has served all of us very well, but you get to a place in life where that's no longer the necessary skill. It's now about cooperating, asking for help and collaborating. Some people make that shift effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Many people have trouble learning to ask for help. So that's one skill. Mm -hmm. The other skill is developing an inner parent that allows you to be nurturing of yourself because many of us have a harsh inner voice in our heads and I could try to prove that to you if you like, but um, that harsh voice, the minute we're, we're, we're in a scary situation is beating us up and asking mm -hmm. for help is the last thing we want to do. One follow up, I want to come back earlier, you mentioned Dr. Deming, if you don't yes. mind coming, coming oh, back to him not. and that you had um, the opportunity to, to um, spend time with him. And, you know, Dr. Deming often gets labeled as a statistician, which I think sells him short in terms yes. of his um, skills and insights. Um, Dr. Deming, uh, I think at one point said, you know, the, one of the most, the, the most important thing for a manager is understanding psychology, mm -hmm. understanding psychology of the individuals who work uh, for you. So I guess one follow-up question, I, I imagine he was very much looking to learn from you, from your psychology background, or I'm curious if, if, if you have any recollections of, you know, talking about, you know, the psychology of, of employees in the workplace with him. I, I met him very late in, in his life, and um, he was already doing workshops for five people at a time because much of his uh, life after World War II was spent teaching other countries, namely Japan, about quality. The United States was very late to recognize his wow. gifts and talents. Um, so um, he and I, I, I was in his programs, but oh, didn't have okay. much opportunity to speak with him directly. Oh, okay. Sorry. But, but do you, I mean, was that, that was an element of what he was teaching and talking about in his, his f famous four-day seminar, right? What's interesting about that four-day seminar, and I heard it from so many people the week I was there, is he was talking about Kaizen as it applies to business. He was talking about um, how you achieve quality. And while these people who were there from Ford and Marriott and other companies um, were there to learn about how to be more effective in their business, every one of them, including me, said that it changed their personal lives. Mm -hmm. uh, because these uh, uh, obviously there's not one place in the brain for business and one for a personal something that's transformative in terms of creativity and organization and effective management has to apply to being a parent and a spouse and a friend mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i see a lot of examples of that um joe schwartz and i 
when we did our book, Healthcare Kaizen, put, we intentionally put a chapter at the end of, you know, stories and examples of people taking Kaizen practice home with them. Yes. And, yes. you know, yes. his health system encourages that because they thought the more and more people practice this, they wanted, you know, people to share their examples with others because it would be uh, either, you know, helpful or inspiring or to give recognition around, you know, I think of people solving problems like how do I get my kids out the door on time <laughs> in the morning? Yes. Um, and there, were, there was not one magic silver bullet uh, to that, but there were a number of different, you know, small, clever things that people did. And I think that builds their enthusiasm then to bring it back into the workplace. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, one other question I had, kind of think back to Dr. Deming, and your book really had me thinking about this, um, this idea, you know, that, that fear uh, exists, um, we, 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 we should embrace it, um, figure out how to best address it. You know, Dr. Deming always famously talked about eliminating fear. Yes. And, you know, I'm curious your thoughts of, of reconciling this. I mean, I, I think maybe, you know, it's good advice for managers to, you know, stop doing things that you know, introduce more fear into yes. the workplace that people have enough to be uh, afraid of with their, their lives and their careers or the project they're working on. But um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. That's a great question because the, the second chapter of one of his books is called Getting Fear Out of the Workplace. Yeah. And what he was addressing was a management style that was very common then and unfortunately still exists in some organizations where you motivate people by scaring them, mm -hmm. by being abusive to them or verbally attacking them in meetings and thinking fear was the motivation. Um, and again, there's just no evidence that that works. It can crush people. Right. Um, what, he, what if in a sense, many of his techniques were ways of uh, responding to fear in a creative way. Hmm. So for example, um, if people, he encouraged people to create systems where if you thought there was even the potential of a mistake, that you'd pull the end in cord, the cord in the factory, um, or be able to take it to your manager, uh, so that you got to re um, uh, deal with mistakes before they got too too big. As you know, there was a sign in the Toyota factory, fix the problem, not the blame. Mm -hmm. so many of his brilliant management techniques were designed not to, uh, because he knew people lived in fear in situations, and how do we get the fear out of it by making it safe for people to ask for help, to bring help, give help to others, and to continually look for small steps so that you didn't get overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a nice way of putting it, making it safe for people to speak up instead of right. lecturing people, you know, thou shalt speak up <laughs> if they're in an environment that doesn't really truly embrace that, right. um, you know, that, that, that lecturing could maybe be counterproductive. But um, I was wondering if, you know, you, you, I want to ask you about a scenario where, I mean, you know, you talk about an environment where, or environments where leaders try to manage by fear that there's no evidence that it works, but boy, people keep trying that. Yes. Um, and maybe they think they need to double down. Maybe you know, I'm not scaring people isn't working, so maybe I need to scare them more. <laughs> I don't know if that's or if it's if that's even a, a conscious thought process. But you know, I was working with an organization where many people, and I, and I thought this is sort of ironic. They were very unafraid of saying that people here are afraid of the CEO. So yeah. part of me thought like, well, it, I thank you for feeling uh, safe <laughs> with me to tell to you say that. 
But then part of me thought, like, aren't you afraid that that will get back to the CEO? Right. Um, but, you know, you know, in that environment where, you know, maybe for good reason, you know, people say they're afraid of the CEO. We, how, where, where do you find the balance of, you know, the problem being the external factor, the CEO and their behavior versus, you know, what I think you, know, you described in the book as an unhealthy stress response? Um, the, the unhealthy stress response is, is basically leaving the fear response on for hours, days, or weeks at a time. Because the fear response that we have is, again, that of a hunter-gatherer. And the examples I gave of the deer running and the bird flying and the mouse being, those responses, are they work instantly or you die instantly. So mm -hmm. the, the fear response wasn't intended to stay on for long periods of time. So... Um, there's two types of fear in a workplace. One is, again, managers that are abusive or harsh, uh, setting unrealistic goals and being punitive, not giving enough communication, not giving praise. And the other is sometimes you have a really good manager, but you have people whose own fears of their own self-worth make it difficult for them to feel the safety of the environment. Mm. Um, but you're trying to make the environment as safe as possible. And keep people focused because you don't necessarily need to eliminate fear, but you don't want it to be afraid of the person next to you or afraid of your boss. You know, it's like Amazon says, if if you set your goals at a certain level, you eventually get to be complacent if you're always looking at what's best for the customer as opposed to looking to see what your competitors are doing. And you never stop learning and growing because there's right. always something more you can do. Right. So, you know, um, yeah. So in a, in a workplace, if, if somebody's afraid in the short term, that may be a necessary healthy response. If that means people are careful with their words, it may be exactly. a short term survival instinct. I'm, I'm going to try to avoid saying something that might get me fired. But the, that response being on for a long time, would, would an example of that be, um, you know, outside of that moment, really spending a lot of time thinking about how they're afraid or is that what you mean by that stress response being still being on? Like if you can't get it off your mind, if you really right. continue worrying about it? Sure. If, if, if you're worrying, if you're thinking about what could possibly go wrong next, if you're dreading going to work or dreading the next meeting, all those things, which may be realistic fears, but they compromise your performance and make it even harder for you to meet up to whatever expectations this boss has of you. So one of the ways we try to train people to deal with that fear um, is to, to do something that we talk about in the first book, One Small Step, it's a concept called mind sculpture, where if you have a difficult boss who berates people in the meeting and you've got to make a presentation, that for just 15 seconds at a time, you close your eyes, picture yourself giving your uh, presentation with complete confidence and assuredness, seeing your boss in front of you scowling or on their phone, um, checking emails or whatever, or whatever your worst fears are, you close your eyes, picture yourselves in that situation, and you continuing to be confident and, and articulate and, and poised um, and imagine the most abusive response and what you'd want to say. But again, 10 or 15 seconds at a time, several times a day, because again, what the brain decides to store and, and use is, is repetition. It's like a commercial. You watch an hour of TV, they show you the same commercial over and over again, knowing they're trying to build the image into your mind. Repetition is the way to do that.
So mind sculpture is the best way to prepare for a scary boss that you can't fire and you can't escape. So thinking back to your two strategies, mind sculpture sounds like it's in that category of looking within that nurturing inner parent, as you call it. Yes. And then, I mean, somebody talking to an outside consultant about a fear is a form of turning to somebody else for support in a way. Exactly right. right. Yes. I suspect that employee may be hoping that without revealing who it is that that that, that this this CEO's behavior is going to is going to be confronted by you the consultant now that they've taken the courageous step of trusting you and giving you the information mm-hmm. um, I think they're hoping you'll go to the bat for yeah. them yes yeah <laughs> yeah um, so I want to talk maybe also about connections between you know the, the, these habits from the book mastering fear and Kaizen, um, do, do you think or suppose that there are connections where let's say an organization that really embraces Kaizen tends to have leaders who are more comfortable with the idea of talking about fear? Um, it's actually, that's a great question and the answer is that the, the more a culture is uh, focused on Kaizen, the less reason there is to have anything to fear because Everyone's coming to work each day trying to figure out what they could do to make the product or process better. So it's a culture of change. People aren't afraid of the next big change, the next big program that's going to be put upon them, the next expensive consultant. They're coming in with news, this and new that. That tends to just create fatigue and and cynicism. Um, Everyone feels they're participating. So it's actually an antidote to fear. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, you know, maybe in the early days of Kaizen, I, you know, I hear people express fear of what if we try something and it doesn't work? Right. And I think there's that classic Kaizen strategy of make the change small. Yes. Um, which eliminates some of that risk, which might help eliminate some of that fear around worst case scenarios, um, yes. making that worst case scenario small, right? Exactly. Yes. You're, if, if there's a need for a change or a desire for a change, you set up a small pilot study and maybe more than one pilot. If, you, if there's two debating ideas about what change needs to take place and see in this small environment, what's what seems to be working rather than making wholesale changes and sometimes putting the, even the organization's health at risk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah making the pilot project small is, is the, is, is the way around that. Yeah. There's also a book called the innovators dilemma, which you probably heard of. It looks at these huge successful corporations that essentially got destroyed. And the scenario was always the same. These big organizations were looking for big products to satisfy big customers and big shareholders. And eventually some company comes along with some small idea too small for the big company to pay attention to and then leapfrogs over them with a product that's superior and often less expensive. And the only solution that this Harvard professor could think of is you have to set up small skunk work, small projects within these big companies so that small ideas have a chance to get nurtured. Yeah. 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 And then there might be, I mean, it's not, uh, my understanding of innovators dilemma is that, you know, the, the company and some level fears the innovation that the new innovation yes. is going to damage their existing business. And, and that might very well be true. And it might be something to, um, to try to address. 
And, and maybe there's those two strategies if the executive is afraid of um, that innovation crushing the existing business, they can go to others for support. Right. Um, maybe within, within the company or within a network of other executives or they can work on that nurturing inner parent. Right, exactly. That's exactly now, I mean, right. Now, do you, do you um, yeah, I don't often get to work with um, CEOs directly. Um, are, are, there, are there cases where, um, you know, you think, uh, where, where these strategies are helpful in, in, in coaching an executive through, you know, a really high level, you know, trying to reinvent the company level, level change. I mean, CEOs are, are human and CEOs are afraid as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Often they have more fears than the people below them. We've, I've asked the heads of several Fortune 500 companies, where'd you feel more in control and mastery of your destiny at the bottom, working your way up or here at the top? And to a person, they said at the bottom, there's a time as you're working your way up an organization, you have the belief, often with justification, that if you work hard and get good results, you'll get promoted. If you've got 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 50,000 people working for you, there are moments when you realize how many people have to do their job with competence and integrity for your insurance, for your success to be insured. At the end of the day, how much control do you have over these people? That fear either leads you to become more creative and inventive and inspiring, mm -hmm. or leads you to become more difficult and demanding and harsh with your employees. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's that common expression, it's lonely at the top. I imagine you get to a certain level, there's fewer peers or fewer people to turn to for support? Unless you see reaching for support as a critical part of your uh, agenda as a CEO, in which case you're seeking out uh, different opinions, you're looking mm -hmm. for conflict, you're trying to figure out where can I go to learn more, you're having uh, learning lunches with your employ line employees to get more information. Yeah. You're not I mean, yourself as having to have all the answers, you have to have the right questions. Well, yeah, and, and to me, that, that's very much a characteristic of what we might call a lean organization. There's that transition um, from being the all-knowing boss who has to have all the answers, which puts a lot of pressure on people, yes. to, to, to uh, be, instead being in a place where uh, it's okay not to have the answers, to be more collaborative, um, you know, to, to ask uh, em, em, employees or uh, leaders within the chain for input. Um, you know, John Toussaint, who was um, the CEO at ThetaCare, you know, talks about this idea of um, how, how it, it's incredibly freeing to not need to have all the answers anymore yes. and to try to create a different type of culture. So I imagine that's one of those behaviors that would really cascade through the organization. If a CEO turns to their direct reports for support, I imagine that sets a tone where it's okay then for those leaders to reach out to others for yes. support and so on. Right? And ask for help. Yes, my, my favorite example of that is, the, is a man named Alan Mulally, who mm -hmm. was the chief engineer on the Boeing 777, which was one of the few planes in aviation history that came in under budget and under time. And when he got passed over for CEO of Boeing, of course, he went to Ford. And he talks about how when he had his first meetings and when Ford was bleeding money, um, he asked the heads of all these uh, uh, 
parts of Ford, what mistakes or what problems are we having? And nobody would bring one up. And finally, one man who was heading up the Toronto division of Ford raised his hand and talked about a tailgate problem they were having. And Mulally's response was to applaud, trying to give people a message. Unless we know about mistakes, we can't fix them. This is a safe place to bring them. Yeah. Well, that's funny. And just this past week, I heard uh, a former Ford product development leader, Jim Morgan, tell that same story at a conference. And from his perspective of being in the room that when that was happening, wow. Mark, Mark Fields is the one who spoke yes. up. And, and Jim said, and he got a laugh because you know, he said, oh, that's a shame. I really liked that guy. You know, <laughs> people in the room really thought he had just signed his own early retirement papers. Yes. Uh, but Mark Fields ended up becoming, uh, I think he directly succeeded, um, succeeded, yes, yeah, succeeded, um, yes. Alan Mulally. Um, whether Correct. he succeeded as CEO, I don't know. He got replaced, Mark Fields did, uh, about yes. a year ago. Alan Mulally was maybe a tough act to follow um, yeah. for a number of reasons. But uh, you know, I think, yeah, within that context of saying, you know, our status on a project or, or something we're working on or a status on a metric, to, to be able to speak up and say it's red, but to reach out for support, maybe, you know, again, seems to be a healthy response to that. Yes. And as Malali tells the story, when they were talking about this tailgate problem with one of Ford's products, other people in the group started jumping in because they had ideas on how to solve it. Yeah. So making, a, making this a place where people were helping each other rather than competing with each other. Yeah. Well, and I see that dyna dynamic a lot, you know, instead of being at more of the boardroom, you know, at the frontline levels where there's, um, you know, a, a, a huddle or a, a department meeting about Kaizen, and I love it when you see somebody being willing to speak up with a problem that they don't have an answer for. And then their colleagues, you know, very, you know, collaboratively start um, jumping in. And, you know, I think, you know, Kaizen, you know, it may start with the spark of, a, of an individual, but I mean, I think it's quite often in the workplace, a team activity and things that we can do to, to nurture that uh, are, are really helpful. Yes. Um, one other topic I was hoping we could touch on here, considering your background, um, is something I was introduced to three or four years ago by a social worker I met at a conference, um, a, a methodology called motivational interviewing. Yes. And I've, I've done two podcasts on, on that topic, and it's still something I'm, uh, I'm trying to learn about and I you know, find really, really fascinating. You know, these ideas that come from more the realm of uh, addiction counseling or, or, or treatment. Um, I was wondering, you know, if, if, if you could share some thoughts on the methodology and, and how, you know, connections you might draw to continuous improvement. Um, motivational interviewing is a powerful technique with lots of research behind it. And it's very useful in if, if when you master the techniques of being able to uh, deal with people who are, are struggling um, or who are dealing with their own fears, because motivational interviewing is based on the premise that if I can stay out of judging this person, I, they don't go on the defensive. Mm -hmm. um, one of my mentors put it this way, the purpose of any negotiation, whether it's with a difficult employee, whether it's with your spouse, teenager, is to create doubts in the mind of the other person about their point of view. 
No one will let you create doubt unless they trust you. And no one will trust you until they're sure you understand and respect their point of view. So um, it would, it, it's, and it goes against human nature because the minute you're doing something I don't like, you're showing up late, you're interrupting, my first impulse is to say, why are you doing that? The problem is we've, we have lots of research in medicine. When you say to a patient, why didn't you take the medicine I gave you? Why didn't you go see the nutritionist? You're actually making the situation worse because all you're asking them to do is justify their behavior and one more time rehearsing their excuses for something that isn't working. So there's two, this motivational technique is far more challenging and difficult than it seems on the surface, but there's two basic strategies. One is reflecting back in your own words what you heard. And what this does is gives the person the message, yes, this person understands where I'm coming from. Because mm -hmm. I don't know about you, I've been in arguments with people, usually at home, where they're saying the exact same thing over <laughs> and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's a sign we have failed to convince them we have heard and respect their point of view. Mm -hmm. So in our haste to persuade somebody to change their mind and change their behavior, we're actually digging them deeper by asking them to justify and explain and whatnot. So what you do, first of all, is reflect back what you heard, which is harder for many people than it seems because it's just not how we're used to dealing in conflict situations. And then asking open-ended curious questions, which is extremely hard for people, technical people to do because we're used to asking questions to solve problems. These are questions that you're just designed to understand the person's point of view um, in order to help them see what changes they would like to make. Um, and so it seems like it's going to take forever, but it's actually paradoxically faster than if you're just sitting there pounding it into somebody. Mm -hmm. who, and particularly in a situation where you have an incredibly talented, gifted employee, you don't want to lose, but they're, they're having behaviors that are making it very hard on the team and are destructive. And so telling them this occasionally works, most of the time not. Yeah. Motivational interviewing is a way of, again, calming their fears because what you're doing is guiding them along um, and helping them discover solutions to the problem. Um, and so it's a, it's a technique that calms other people's fears and takes the, the intensity and pressure and judgment out of a conversation. It's extremely challenging for people to learn this because mm -hmm. I just gave a talk last week to a group of engineers and I said to them, how many of you think you're curious? Everybody raised their hand. And I said, I don't, most of you raised your hand because you ask problems or questions all day long, yeah. but you're not asking asking questions just to understand. You're trying to get data to solve a problem. Motivational interviewing, you're just trying to understand the person's point of view. And when I gave them exercises just to practice it, every single one of us fails the first time because it's just not natural. You can learn it, but it's a powerful technique for getting people to change without you imposing it on them. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the one, one, I think, consistent theme that, that comes out of a lot of these approaches. I think your books uh, and motivational interviewing approach that, that talks about human behaviors that are natural. I think the connection I would draw again to, uh, to lean and the Toyota production system is this idea of respect for people, which I, I think doesn't just mean I'm 
treating you with respect, but it's also, I think, the element of I respect your humanity, your human nature. So when you talk about and on cords or error proofing, I think there's a respect, a healthy respect to say people get uh, fatigued, distracted. There are all kinds of reasons people might make a mistake. So we need to try to help. We need to understand that instead of lecturing and saying, hey, be, be a superhero and don't make a mistake. Um, with, I think, your work, there's this human nature that we get scared by change yes. and that should be respected and acknowledged. And then in, in motivational interviewing, I, li I like the phrase they use, the writing reflex. Yes. That it's a, it seems like it's human nature. I want to help you, Bob. I'm going to tell you what to do. Right. But I think there's also, um, I think there's this Toyota idea of go slow to go fast. Yes. of investing in a relationship with someone you're helping, trying to help, guiding them, drawing out motivations instead of telling them what to do, that investment of time may lead to um, faster improvement as a result, right? Yes, yep. As Toyota says, we build cars and we build people. Yeah. But um, the, 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 the question you raise about, um, you know, or the, 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 the phrase you used about not, triggering someone's defensiveness, which, uh, you know, that defensiveness seems also like a natural um, human reaction to think of, you know, situation, to have a conversation with a CEO people are afraid of um, saying, why are you doing that? <laughs> why are you yelling at people? Um, why have you, you know, whether this is true or just perception, why, why do you fire people who disagree with you? That, that, that's not really going to lead to a helpful conversation. Ask, you know, kind of accusing as opposed to, I'm trying to think why, because I didn't have a chance to have that conversation, unfortunately. Of course. Um, I'm trying to think what a healthy, uh, constructive way of addressing that would be. You know, there's some a former Toyota leader Ron Oslin, who teaches motivational interviewing and frames a lot of this in terms of leaders are uh, addicted to the status quo, and that on some level they might they might think they might be afraid to say that some of their behaviors are counterproductive, but they may rationalize it in different ways. Um, I need to show people this stuff is serious, or they rationalize giving answers because well. We, you know, we don't, we don't have time to develop people. Um, but I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, at some level, somebody has to be willing to come to the table to even explore the idea that a, a behavior might be counterproductive to the organization. Well, in motivational interviewing strategy would be if you had the opportunity to sit down and say, is what is, what is your vision for where you want the company to go? What would an ideal employee look like to you um what kind of how, how do you want your employees to be looking at you and thinking about you and the organization trying to get them to to a level where they have some values and aspirations and then you can then once once you've established the value or the purpose that they see and often there's a nobility that uh, is is uh, is buried but it's there uh, once once their vision is clear then um, can you share with me how you're treating your employees that you think is helping you get there or what help you need so that your employees will see you the way you just described 
So you're asking them to come up with the dream and asking them to come up with solutions. And then there's another motivational technique I like where, because some, some, some people want to change, but they have no idea how to do it. Mm -hmm. says, Would it be helpful to you if I shared with you some strategies that other successful CEOs I've worked with have found very uh, essential? Yeah. You've asked permission to give them the information. They've said yes. You give them specific information, then how does that sound to you? So you're asking permission, mm -hmm. giving them suggestions, and then asking for their feedback is the motivational way of giving uh, specific uh, help. Yeah. yeah, because there there are times where people will ask, what do you think I should do? And, and one thing I've tried to practice from motivational interviewing is – um, double checking, you know, if the permission maybe has been clearly uh, been given, but maybe double check that permission mm -hmm. to say, here's something that others have done. I want to share that with you, which is different than saying you should do that. You're right. sort of maybe presenting an alternative, you know, and, and to me, motivational interviewing, one key takeaway is that you respect the choice of the person you're helping, that ultimately right. the choices are theirs and maybe you can proposed choices or, or help them talk about their motivation for right. making different choices and, and instead of trying to impose um, your, your will on them. That doesn't work either, right? Not, not very easily, no. Not when you're working with somebody who's got more power and authority than you or has been resistant to change, absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's, um, I, I really do recommend for, for listeners um, you know, to, to check out um, all of the books. Um, I know Spirit of Kaizen, the other book title was One Step at a Time or One Small one, Step? One Small Step Can Change Your Life. One Small Step Can Change Your Life. Yes. Um, the Spirit of Kaizen and uh, Mastering Fear. There's uh, a lot of uh, really, really uh, thought-provoking, I, I think, helpful, practical um, strategies in there. And then th this might embarrass you a little bit, but um, I think, you know, in terms of endorsements of the book Spirit of Kaizen, Bob, um, you know, you, that um, listeners might not know that when I was at the Toyota Visitor Center in uh, Japan, um, their uh, bookshelf, they, they sold a lot of books in Japanese, of course. There were a handful of books from Americans in English, and the Spirit of Kaizen was one of those books that Toyota was choosing to sell. You sent me that picture, and I was so grateful, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, so they, they, they clearly they, they appreciate your work and um, the insights there. Do you, uh, do you have any other, um, just kind of open-ended question, any other you know, maybe kind of final thought you might want to share uh, with the listeners? Um, just that again, Dr. Deming believed that Kaizen was a way of, of thinking, a way of living. Um, he used to say that it takes it took three years for people, for a company to develop a Kaizen culture. And I don't think he was telling the truth, but he knew how impatient a culture we were. And he knew that if you were going to invest in making small steps, that you needed to give it whatever time it was going to take and not expect instant results that we tend to associate with a, a good technique. So to be patient with yourself as you're thinking small, because uh, it's the tortoise and the hare. Sometimes the smallest steps are the most powerful and fastest way to get results. Yeah, well, that's well said. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much uh, for um, sharing your thoughts, um, taking questions today. I find it um, 
very helpful, gives me a lot to think about uh, on top of the books, which I appreciate very much. Thanks for taking time here today. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.